Would you be opening your Bible to 1 John chapter 1? While you're turning there, let me express again my thanks to all of you that are here tonight. My appreciation is expressed to the elders for the invitation extended to me to come and be with you. I'm grateful to Brother Clemens and Brother Graves and Brother Griffith and Brother Hendrickson and Brother Reynolds and Brother Sullivan for the invitation. The only real direction and instruction that was given was to preach the gospel. And there are a wide variety of topics and directions in which we could have gone this week, but I hope that what we have done will be helpful to you to reassure your faith and confidence in God and in the Bible and your faith to be strengthened, maybe to reinforce some convictions that you have, a phrase or two that might have been turned a little differently, perhaps not, but something for you to hear and hang on to, and maybe to equip you to be better able to talk to those with whom you have to do and to help us to be better Christians and live the way the Lord wants us to live. I appreciate the invitation to be with you. And, of course, it's been a special delight to me to be able to spend some time with Tony. As he's mentioned, our friendship goes back a long, long ways, and I'm grateful to have had this pleasure. Usually preachers have preaching in common, so there's a a common bond there and and fellowship that we enjoy. But when you have a friendship that goes back, that just adds to it. And he's been very gracious and uh, all week, and I told him when he got up to introduce me Sunday morning, I said, don't say anything for which you'll have to repent. <laughs> Gotten close a time or two, but I don't think he crossed the line. But I appreciate it. It's been a joy to be with you. Uh, we've had visitors each night. There's some here tonight. We have visitors from sister congregations Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night, I know. Don't forget to repay them when they have their meetings and such. That just as they've encouraged you and me by being here with us this week, you'll encourage them when they have their meetings. So repay them, and uh, plus the spiritual benefit you derive from it. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, says, This then is the message that we've heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Those verses set before us the reality that sin is something with which we have to deal, to address. 
Forgiveness is one of the sweetest words in the human vocabulary. To be released from a debt, as it were, by another. Whether it is a personal relationship and things that occur therein for which forgiveness is required, or whether it is in our relationship with God, forgiveness is a sweet, sweet word. And when forgiveness is given, expressed, and received, and that friendship and relationship has been restored and reconciliation has take pl- taken place, where there's no grudge, there's no bitterness that remains, there's forgiveness. Tonight I want to talk with you about what we have come to call the second law of pardon. You know that your New Testament never uses that phrase, but it also never uses the phrase the first law of pardon. But I want us to think tonight about what you and I, as children of God, do about sin. John says we cannot say we have not sinned, 1 John 1.10. Neither can we say we have no sin, 1 John 1 and verse 8. I have sinned, I do sin. Now that's not the ideal and that's not the thing for which we're aiming and striving. 1 John 2 and verse 1, John said, I write these things that you sin not. That you don't sin at all. And yet, he goes right on and says, if we do sin, there's an advocate and a propitiation for that sin, Jesus Christ. So how does the second law of pardon work? Now, the first law of pardon, we probably all know, but for the benefit of any that might not, you have to first hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Verse 13 of that chapter says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And so hearing is essential. But now just hearing alone doesn't produce faith. There's a positive reception of what is heard and the Definite decision made to believe it because in that same chapter, Paul says, have they not all heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into the ends of the world. And so everybody that heard didn't believe. But that's how faith is produced in the human heart, by the word of God. And that faith then goes on to respond to the word of God by repenting. Acts 17.30 is commanded of all men everywhere. Confessing with our mouth what we believe in our heart. That Jesus is the Son of God and God raised Him from the dead for our sakes. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And the confession can be before an audience as small as one. Or in an audience, an assembly this size tonight. There has to be that vocal confession. And then one is baptized in water, immersed in water, for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. To be saved, Mark 16.15 and 16, 1 Peter 3.21. 
to wash our sins away, Acts 22.16, but the agent that does the washing is the blood of Jesus, Revelation 1.5. So we're baptized. Then we arise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6 and verse 4. New creatures in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Old things passed away, all things are become new. Oh, but it won't be very long with us, just as it was not very long with Jesus. After he was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, your Bible says that straightway or immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness where he was 40 days and 40 nights without eating. Luke says he did eat nothing. And then the devil came to him. And approached him in those three avenues of temptation that's common to all of us. Just as he did not wait very long to begin the testing of the faith of Jesus, it won't be very long till he'll test ours. The difference is we give in and Jesus did not. We sin. We can't say we don't sin. 1 John 1 verse 8. What do we do about it? I've already stated the problem, and the problem is sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Romans 3.9 and 23. Verse 9 says, What then are we better than they, Jews better than the Gentiles? No in no wise, for we have before proved that all are under sin. And you know verse 23 very well. So that's the problem. But what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to think about how that problem presents itself in our lives. And the first way, perhaps the broadest category of sin, is what I am calling private sin. And by that I mean they are, they are sins that I commit and that you commit that nobody else knows about. They're private. All of us do that. We commit those private sins. You remember that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gave a series of contrasting doctrines. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her, has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now that's private sin. She doesn't know. Nobody else knows what has gone on in that heart except the one who commits that sin. It's private. Of course, the Lord knows. But it's only between that individual and the Lord. Our Bible teaches us that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now we have, so far as I can tell tonight, done that. But while we have done what the Bible authorizes us to do in our worship, singing songs of praise to God accompanied by the instrument of the heart, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, Petitioning God in prayer, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, as well as other passages. And now a studying together of the Word of God, 
All of that's authorized in our worship. On Sunday, we're authorized to give and partake of the Lord's Supper. But this isn't Sunday, so we don't do those things. But whether or not I am worshiping God right now, in my spirit, communing in my spirit with God who is spirit, you don't know that. But God does. And I don't know whether you are. But God does. And if I am not engaged in that kind of worship, then I'm sinning, but it's a private thing. Nobody knows it but me and the Lord. And so there are what we would call private sins, sins that nobody else knows about. It may have been that which David had in mind when he petitioned the Lord to keep me back from secret sin. So their sin comes into my life through what we would call private sins. But it also comes in through what we could call personal sins. And by that I mean sins that occur between me and another individual or within a small group of people. And I realize the word small and large can be relative terms. But I'm speaking from the standpoint of the fact that it is limited in how widely it is known. It's a personal type thing, you see. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus said, If thy brother sin against thee, go and tell him between thee and him alone. Now I want you to think about something here. Jesus is giving a formula for how we deal with private, or personal rather, sins. Sins between two individuals. He goes on to say, and I'm going to come back to this again in a minute, and I won't spend a lot of time with it. But he goes on to say that if you go to your brother and he hears you and repents, you've gained your brother. Everything's fine. But if he doesn't hear you, then you take two or three witnesses. Now, they are not witnesses to the sin. They are witnesses to the effort for reconciliation. So, I've sinned against Tony. And he comes and tells me that I have. And I tell him, you ought not be so sensitive. Well, I'm not going to tell you I'm sorry. That's your problem. Now, if he does what the Bible teaches, he'll come back and he'll bring two or three men in whom he has some confidence and perhaps someone that he knows I have confidence in. And he'll come back and address my sin again. In the hopes that, as Jesus is laying this out, those two or three witnesses will be an influence to make that right. Now, if, if I repent, everything's fine. Well, what if I don't? Then he says, take it to the church. Now, folks, here is a way in which sin can occur personally. The way I've just described, I sin against Tony. But if he starts going out and telling everybody else, now he's sinned. Jesus didn't say if your brother sins against you, go and tell everybody you know. Go and tell everybody he knows. He said go and tell him. 
In the first place, he may not even be aware of it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever wronged somebody unintentionally and ignorantly? When I first started trying to preach, I didn't have a lot of formal education, but I was zealous. I had a lot of zeal without knowledge. I still don't have a lot of knowledge. But I depended a lot on what preachers then called canned sermons. Tony never used any of those, I'm sure. Sermon outline books. I got one one time, still have them, by Brother W.E. Skipper. He preached over here at Mount Leo years and years ago. Some of you no doubt remember him. He had a sermon that you've probably heard, you may not have known, and I don't know if it was original with him, but it was called The Tater Family. And it talked about the agitator, the hesitator, and just several of those kinds of folks. Well, I got up one Sunday morning to preach that, and I did what I thought was a pretty good job of explaining I don't have anybody here specifically in mind. This applies to you fine, but I didn't get this sermon to preach it at you because I've got you in mind. About four or five weeks later, one of the ladies in the congregation told me after services that morning, they only met on Sunday morning, she said, do you realize that you've offended this family? They hadn't been there, and I didn't know it. No. Their last names were Tate. So they somehow or other thought that when I started talking about the Taters, I was talking about the Tates. I got in the car. My wife was with me, and I said, we've got to go see the Tates. And I went to their house and profusely apologized. In fact, I remember telling them, you would have been the last folks that would have been in my mind for some of those descriptions that were given in that sermon. See, that's why you go and tell your brother between you and him alone. He may not even know. And if he's got the right kind of heart, he's going to want to fix that. Resolve that because he's your brother. But we can make it worse, you see, if we go and ignore what Jesus says and start spreading it around to everybody else, love covers a multitude of sins. I'll guarantee you that I don't go all over the place telling everybody all about the couple of faults that my wife had. And you notice I said just a couple. And you don't either. Why? Because you love her and you would not hold her up for public ridicule over any mistakes that she makes. I know sometimes we jest and joke about husbands and wives, mothers-in-law and so forth. But you would not do that in a serious way. Here is a personal wrong. It needs to be taken care of personally. Jesus in Luke 17:3 said, that if thy brother sin against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Folks, forgiveness is conditional. 
And God does not expect me to forgive someone who has wronged me until they have repented any more than he does that. He does, ask, does not ask me to do something that he himself doesn't do. I'm sure you've seen someone on television who has experienced some kind of a misfortune. They're being interviewed with a microphone in their face. Someone has struck someone in their family with an automobile while drunk and injured or even killed them. And, or someone has uh, maliciously taken the life of another person in their family and they will hold a microphone under their nose and sometimes those folks, well-intentioned, will say, I have forgiven you. You don't have the right to do that. God hadn't forgiven him. There's conditions on that. Now, God doesn't carry a grudge, so we don't either. But forgiveness is about restoration of a relationship and reconciliation, and that can't take place as long as that sin is there, and it has to be addressed. Sin comes into our lives privately as there are things that take place in our minds or with our motives or things that we may do where nobody else knows us at all. Sin takes place on a personal level between individuals. In that same context of Luke 17, Jesus said, It must needs be that offenses come. But woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. You cannot get a group of people together like this congregation or even the congregation at Rome that's smaller than, than you are here without somewhere along the way people getting crossways with each other. Husbands and wives do. Siblings do. Brethren will. But here's how we handle it, just like Jesus said. But now notice, sin comes into our life in a public way. And by this I mean here is a sin that is known far and wide as it were. In 1 Corinthians 5.1 Paul said concerning that man who was committing fornication with his stepmother apparently. He said it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication is, as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. This wasn't something that was done in private. This wasn't something that was done just between these two individuals involved. Folks knew about it and were apparently talking about it. It was publicly known. And to the shame of the church at Corinth, Paul says, you're puffed up about it. They were not mourning and grieving over that man's soul. They were actually puffed up about it. So not only was the fornicator due a rebuke, those who were bragging about it were as well. Sin comes into our life that way. 1 John 5 in verse 16 says, If a man see his brother sin, a sin not unto death, he shall ask and God shall give him life. There's a sin unto death. I do not say that he should pray for it. All unrighteousness is a sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But right here is a public sin. Here's one where brethren see us do that. And go back to Matthew 18, 16 to 17 that I mentioned a moment ago, where that 
private, that personal sin between two individuals, now becomes public because of the lack of the right response on the part of the one who sinned. It has to be made known to those two or three witnesses because he wouldn't repent. Then he wouldn't repent with their presence. Now it has to be known to the whole congregation. It becomes public when it didn't have to be. Brethren, it is possible for us to mark out each other's lives and know who is and is not faithful at least to a point. Did not Paul say in Galatians 6 in verse 1, Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault... Can you know when somebody is in that condition? You must be able to because Paul said, You who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It was possible for those who were spiritual in the church, in churches in Galatia to be able to look among their number and see and know if a brother was overtaken in a fault and then take the steps to restore him. They could know that. Didn't Paul say to the church at Rome in in Romans 16 and verse 17, Mark them that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine of Christ and avoid them. The word mark Put your eye on. comes from a word from which we get our word scope. Any hunter in here knows what a scope does. You set your eye on those members that are causing divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. There's the standard. Perhaps Paul had first and foremost in his mind false teachers who would come in among them. That's not the only way you can cause division and offenses. You can cause division and offenses by an unfaithful lifestyle that has an, has, has an example and an influence to others that causes them to fall short. Every member that is not here tonight that could be is influencing every other member to do likewise. They're causing division, potentially anyway. And offenses. They are to be marked and avoided. Can you know who they are? Sure you can. You can see them and know. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said in verse 14, We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. Strengthen the weak. Be patient with all men. Can you know who the unruly are? In 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, he said, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the traditions which you've received of us. Can you know who those folks are? Sure you can. Why? Because they are engaged in public sin. It's not hidden. It's known. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14. 
Paul said, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. If I have a dear friend with whom I fish or play golf or meet at Hardy's for coffee every morning, who is a member of the body of Christ and goes off into sin, I quit doing those things with that brother. Oh, I will plead with him to come back to Christ. I'll invite him and encourage him. But I don't socialize with him anymore. Why? He's not faithful. He's not obeying the word of God. And all social contact is broken. Because we don't have fellowship and friendship anymore like we once did. We can't. Sin has entered the picture. Now, the point of all of this is not to talk about discipline, but to talk about the fact that here is how sin enters into some people's lives in a public way. It's known. People see that individual, whether it be a member of the church or not a member, they see that individual and they recognize here is someone who is not living the way those other folks down there live. Sin comes into my life privately. There are sins I commit nobody else knows about but me and God. There are times and occasions when I may sin personally in that I sin against a brother or sister or even someone not in Christ. Now like you, I don't intend to do that, but sometimes I do. And then there are those sins that occur publicly where in the supermarket, in the general store, at a ball game, our temper is triggered. We lose our composure. We say things we ought not. We dress down that cashier who shorted us a nickel in our change. Now, if she'd given us a nickel too much, that'd have been all right, wouldn't it? But we dress her down. Or we start saying all kinds of ugly things about that umpire and his heritage. For several years, I've been running the clock for the elementary basketball team at the little school not very far from where we live. I don't have any children or grandchildren playing, so I don't have anything at stake. But I enjoy doing that. But I sometimes jest with the referees when they get there. I said, now, fellas, if you all need any help you got all kinds of folks over that are ready to help you. They grin. They know it. Folks, when we behave, that's public. It's not something done in private. That's how sin comes. James 1.14, every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now what's the prescription? Here's the second law of pardon. I have to repent... 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. The sorrow of the world worketh death. So there is a genuine sorrow about what my sin has done first and foremost to God. If you have ever wept because your words broke the heart of your spouse...
If you have ever wept because your words broke the heart, the spirit of your child, when you weep because your words have offended God and broken His heart, that's godly sorrow. When there strikes home in our heart the realization that what I did not do today that I should have, that could have honored my God, disappointed Him. That's godly sorrow. And that will and can lead to repentance. Change of a heart and mind. My daughter will tell you that the worst thing in the world I ever did to her was not whipping her too hard. But on one occasion when I said to her, I am disappointed in you. God is disappointed in me. Every time I sin. Though it may not be as often as it once was, it breaks his heart. And Simon the sorcerer tried to buy from the apostles the power to lay his hands on converts and give them the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit because they were not received any other way by converts. That's evident from Acts 8. They were not going to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, else there was no need to send Peter and John to Samaria. Philip was there and he could work miracles, but he could not give them that ability. Only an apostle could so do. When Simon saw that, he offered them money to give him that ability. He was ignorant. He didn't know he couldn't have it that way. But in Acts 8.22, Peter told him, Repent and pray God if perhaps the thoughts of thine heart might be forgiven thee. Repent and pray. And then he said to Peter, You pray for me. I have to repent as I've just suggested. We have to pray. And in that prayer, as Paul, as Peter rather told Simon, there is implied the confession that I make that what I've done is exactly what God says it is. It's sin. 1 John 1, 9 that we noted earlier, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's no but... No ifing about it. I sinned. I may call it a mistake. I may, as even the Bible sometimes calls it, a shortcoming. But I have violated the will of God. I did something I had no right to do. Or I did not do something I'm supposed to do. I'm confessing that. As I pray to God, I'm acknowledging to Him Exactly what he says about my conduct is is sin. And there is, though it is never expressed explicitly, the request for forgiveness. Peter said to Simon, Repent and pray, God, if perhaps the thoughts of thine heart might be forgiven thee. Pray for what? Pray for that very thing that we want. Now in the prayer. Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, Matthew 6. He taught them pray 
forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we ask for that forgiveness. We repent and we pray. That takes care of that private sin nobody else knows about. That takes care of those personal sins that nobody knows about. When it's a public sin, there needs to be a public response. That's what 1 John 5, 16 teaches. Where do we get authority for extending an invitation and asking brethren to be restored? Right here in 1 John 5, 16. If I see my brother sin a sin unto death, I'll ask and God will give him life. Now, what is a sin not unto death? Sin of which a man will repent. How do I know he's repented? I can't know his heart. But I'll see the demonstration of that as he expresses his desire to be forgiven and to be restored. There is a sin unto death, John says. I don't say you should pray for that. What's a sin unto death? Any sin of which one is unwilling to repent. If you see me sin, you can pray all day long, every day, and I will never be forgiven of that until I repent and confess that sin. And that's what we're asking people to do in our assemblies when we say to brethren, if you've fallen away, if you've drifted back into sin, If it is a public sin, let brethren know about your repentance. Then we can go to the throne of God and we can say, Lord, give this brother, this sister, the life that sin has taken away from them. And earlier in that same context, John said this is the confidence that we have, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, he'll give us that which we've asked. God wants people to be saved. His children. When there is that repentance and we go to God and ask him to give them life on the condition of that repentance, why, there is restoration that takes place in the heart of God. Second Corinthians seems to indicate that that fornicator at Corinth repented. How did they know he repented? There had to be some kind of a public acknowledgement and response, didn't there? Some, from the evidence of Second Corinthians, felt like he hadn't suffered enough, so they were continuing to punish him a little bit and withhold their fellowship from him. Paul says, don't do that. He suffered enough. The second law of pardon is the means God provides for you and me as His children when we do sin to make that right with Him and with each other. Paul said, Where sin did abound, Romans 5 and verse 20, Grace did much more abound. Though we may not sin as much, we still sin. Don't want to. I'm going to get up in the morning if the Lord lets me wake up with the intent that I am not going to commit a single sin tomorrow. If 
but I most likely will. The tongue no man can tame, James says. Maybe I'll have a bad thought about somebody. You ever done that? Somebody says something ugly to you? Have you ever thought, oh, I'd like to hit you so hard your shirt would run up down your back like a window shade? Now, you've got to be old enough to know what a window shade is. But you don't do that, but you've had the thought. And there's the need then to say, Lord, forgive me. Make me more like Jesus. Turn the other cheek. We sin. Wish we didn't. I wish I didn't. But I do. Thanks be to God. For we have come to call his second law of pardon. By which we can stand always in a right relationship with him. You're evidently interested in heaven. You're here tonight. If you've obeyed that first law of pardon. Are there some things amiss in your life, in your heart? If they're private, take care of them privately. Now, there's nothing wrong with coming to brethren and saying in a public assembly like this, I'm struggling with this or that. I want you to pray for me. That's a good thing to do, as a matter of fact. But if it's a private sin, you can take care of it right there where you sit. If there's something that's happened in a falling out between you and another, didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, if you bring your gift to the altar, remember your brother has ought against you, leave your gift and first go and be reconciled to your brother. Your worship's not acceptable. If there is not on your part and my part every effort to be right with our brethren, do you need to go tonight to a brother and sister and say, let's fix this between us. Whatever my part is, I'm ready to make it right. Now, you can't control what the other person does. But if you need to do that, do it. Before you fill it your head tonight. But if you have brethren that look at you and know in your life there are things that ought not be there, and there are those in the world that know it's there, then you need tonight to let your brethren here know, I want to make it right. Be restored. Let them see your repentance. Then they can pray that God will give you life, and he will. If you've not obeyed that first law of pardon, there's a baptistry behind me, water in it. There are garments here into which you can change. It won't take you very long to be born again. If you'll believe in Jesus, turn away from the life you've been living to serve him. Confess that faith and be baptized. You can walk out of here tonight a child of God. Every sin of your past washed away and cleansed. That's our prayer for you tonight. Thank you for being good listeners this week. If your soul's in danger, come while we stand together and sing.